Hello everyone, welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. We're very glad to have you here with us and uh, continuing our new focus, trying to align a little bit closer to the uh, lesson quarterly. Uh, Today we are talking about the power of personal testimony. My name is Cameron, I live down in Launceston and as always very much looking forward to today's discussion. Yeah, g'day, I'm Ken, uh, also in Launceston. I've been interested in this study, The Rich Man and Lazarus. Um, He lived in luxury every day. Um, I wonder what that's like. Uh, Perhaps there will be many in the world who would say, in Launceston, we already know. Hello, everyone. This is Luke calling in from Hong Kong. Uh, It's been a rough uh, period since I last joined the podcast, and I'm looking forward to the discussion tonight. I'm Lachlan, joining from New South Wales, and because it's school holidays here at the moment, we have the luxury of having some grandparents looking after the kids for a little while. So I'm joined this evening by my wife, Clancy, who has some interesting insights to share along this conversation. Hi. As Ken um, said, today we're going to look at the story of uh, the rich man of Lazarus. This is not perhaps the story that you would immediately turn to if you were trying to establish the power of personal testimony. But in as much as I think most Christians agree that personal testimony is is an important part of evangelism and an important aspect of, of Christian life is sharing what God's done for us, uh, we thought that we would pick a story this week that was a little uh, bit off-centre that provides an alternate perspective and raises perhaps some interesting, hopefully some some curly, some uh, uh, many-faceted questions that can keep us and all of you, our listeners, busy for the next week thinking. So we're going to start uh, the story now. It's found in Luke 16. I'll start reading from verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I don't know that I can ever come across... uh, one of Jesus' teachings, let alone one of his additional teachings, perhaps, uh, that makes sense straight up 
Uh, and this one still falls into that category. It just, what's it getting at? It, it's in good company in, in this chapter. The, the story at the start of the chapter is the story of the dishonest manager who steals from his master and is, is praised for his shrewdness. There are, some, there are some actually explicit parallels between the shrewd manager and the rich man and Lazarus. They both start with there was a certain rich man. I was interested in what you said, Ken, that you've never, you don't read a parable and you get it straight off. You'd make a very good disciple because <laughs> they never get what Jesus is getting at. But the, di- the thing that is a, quite a fundamental difference between the parable of the shrewd manager and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is Jesus explains the parable of the shrewd manager. He does not explain the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, it's a good point. And he usually does explain his parables or at least do a, or at least a sort of a tie off. And then Jesus said to them, blah, blah, blah. He, he doesn't say anything. Or sometimes he, he explains them to his disciples privately. Afterwards. Like, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Even with the explanation of the first parable, it, I'm not 100% clear what the message is. I mean, there's, there's two themes which I'd like to um, look at. One of them is related to the, this week's quarterly, as I said, which is on personal testimony. And uh, I'd like to look at what the parable of the rich man and Lazarus says about in what ways is, is personal testimony limited in its ability to, to convince people to change what they think and the way they act. More generally, to look at, uh, you know, Christ seems to be reasonably ambivalent. Ambivalent wouldn't be the right word. He's not consistent Ambiguous? about whether he recommends people to share their testimony. Ambiguous. Ambiguous. Yes. Ambiguous is the word I want. Uh, so that's that's one thing which I'd like to look at. The, the other thing that comes out of this particular story, which is certainly the case with the shrewd manager as well, is that Christ is really, really interested in the way that we spend our money. I, he offers much more teachings on that subject than he does on prayer or other specifically religious activities. And I think that's something else we could look at. But... Before we get on to there, um, what, what is Christ saying here to the Pharisees and his audience uh, about, is it a statement on the limited power of personal testimony, the closing passage of this story, or is it a statement on their own state of mind? I have to be honest, I don't feel like this story has anything to do with personal testimony except for one reference to it at the end uh what father abraham says um to lazarus uh, not to lazarus to the rich man is that um you are you are at a, a place or a state of mind or, or at least it is possible to enter a state of mind where you, you would have to imagine that if you're if your personal testimony was, "Hey, yesterday I was dead, today I'm not," that that would be that would be first order, um, spectacular personal testimony. And Abraham is saying to the rich man, "Look, uh, it's quite possible to be in a state of mind where no degree of spectacular personal, you know, testimony, no, no miraculous sign that's been done in your life, no, or in someone else's life, or you know, it is possible to be in a state where you cannot be convinced." There seems to be some element of that in Abraham's response. I, I also think it's interesting that we finish off this chapter and this story 
with saying, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Uh, and immediately before this story, we've got some of Jesus' additional teachings in which he starts at verse 16 and says, the law, Moses, and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Everyone's forcing their way into it. It's easy for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. So he sort of starts with a reference to the law uh, and then gives an example of the sort of law that might be spoken about, the divorce, um, and then goes into a story which finishes off with the importance of the law. But am I missing something? I think you're missing the verse before that, which is you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honours is detestable to the sight of God. I think he's calling them out on their um, hypocrisy. The audience for this is specifically the Pharisees. The shrewd manager ends and then it says the Pharisees who loved money were listening and they sneered at Jesus. And so then Christ tells them in this next parable, the Pharisees are, Christ seems to be saying, you, you are this rich man dressed in purple and fine linen. And to say to a Pharisee, you need to pay more attention to the law and the prophets would be to, to other listeners on a, an amazing statement because they were the alpha champions of law and prophets yeah, I mean, it's like trying to tell in a multi a multi denominational congregation. It's like trying to tell the Adventists that they need to start taking Sabbath more seriously. Yes, <laughs> I think you can. I think you can infer that the rich man and Lazarus is probably to the to the to the Pharisees. The shrewd manager is explicitly to his disciples, um, and the Pharisees right. overhear him. But it's it implied the Pharisees listen. Yes, it, to no, it's, it's outright said that they're listening. But that the first one is is is, and it is very much the content of it. And Jesus's explanation of it is telling the disciples to be aware that the way they do things and the way the world, in inverted commas, do, does things is different. And that, you know, it's easy to think that it's the best way to do things is to be sneaky and, and cheat, but that's that's not the way to do it because then how how can how are you how are you upright and righteous? But and then that then there's the discourse on the law and the prophets, which is to the Pharisees. But and by inference, because this story comes next, you you can I, I guess we can assume that this is to the same group of Pharisees. But I mean that's that's the thing that is very um, ambiguous to use your word from before, Cam, about the audience of this is who is this delivered to? Because it's not necessarily at the same time or in the same place. It's just yes. Luke wrote it down right afterwards. Um, sometimes things are, are, are placed topically, maybe because Jesus talked about them at the same time or maybe because they just make sense together. I like the, the verse that you pulled out, Clancy, the one that you referred to was the... Uh... Oh, what verse number is it? Uh, verse eight. Fifteen. Oh no, verse eight. Of which? Uh, the one comparing the for the people of this world are more mm. shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. In the past, I've read it in the sense as if Christ is saying, "You could have so much to learn from dishonest people. They're so clever at being dishonest. If only good people were as clever at being good as dishonest people are at being bad." There's there's so much ingenuity and so much and you know it's like students who cheat honestly if they put a quarter of the effort that they put into preparing secret notes and you know smuggling them in if they if they put half the amount of forethought and planning into just studying they'd do twice as well so you know people who do regrettable things have a lot to teach us 
And that's, I think, one of the themes that, that comes out um, of that first story. There's also the sense, isn't there, the manager uh, steals from his master, effectively, to ensure that he has many friends when he loses his job. Yeah. And then Christ says, uh, use worldly the wealth. master to, praised him. Yeah, master praises him. And then he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, which I think means when you've died, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. It is obviously when you've died. Almost in the sense of Christ saying, if you were really purely 100% self-interested, you would give your money away to the poor. Hmm. I mean, he does follow that by saying, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Like it's a, this is the thing that is, is quite tricky with parables, is that especially ones where Jesus goes and, and explains them, um, he's in almost every case a parable is making one point. They are often so foreign to us in their in their setup and in their details that we try to draw too many lessons out of them. I think. And I wonder whether that's a really cultural thing. I'm really struggling to understand some of the. I, I I've always struggled to understand these two parables. In fact, for a variety of reasons. Even as my understanding of them grows in general terms, I still have a lot of questions. Is verse 9, which, and I know we're talking more about the bit of this chapter that we didn't read than the bit we are, and I'm sorry, but is verse 9 implying that you should steal? I don't think so. And give to people? No, I don't think so. Because he's saying use your worldly resources to benefit others. And then if you're faithful Uh, in little things, you'll be faithful in large things. So the... I think the the point is there. It's interesting that this is Luke because in in a few places in Luke we have parables of what God is not like. Um, we yeah. have we have in Luke quite a few stories um, where where Jesus explains something and says basically oh, that's not what God is like. And I think that this is this is one of them, right? The master the master in a lot of the parables is is God, but in this story the master is not God. It is a an earthly master who does not display the character of God. Well, in a sense, he does display the character of God because he, um, uh, rather than um, sending sending the uh, unjust steward to jail, um, he uh, wears the loss. Um, and so he demonstrates well, extraordinary grace. In that. It doesn't say whether or not he sent him to jail. It just says he commended him. He might no, have no. then immediately sent him to jail after. Yeah, well, well, he could have, but he could have, uh, because of the uh, if he called him on the carpet uh, and said, "Here's what you've done wrong." Yeah, that, um, I, I'm glad. I know that we didn't read this parable out, but I, I'm I am glad it's had such an airing because it, it is very common in themes to the the rich man and Lazarus. These parables thematically, obviously, belong very closely because you know we've brought this up in the context of of personal testimony. I think it's abundantly obvious from Christ's ministry that um, you know what what hap- what's talked about in the rich man and Lazarus happened with someone named Lazarus. But not only- in this gospel. But not in this gospel, yeah. So it it's very obvious that uh, personal testimony powerful though it is won't change all minds. So I've been thinking about this. This is the other upside of having a good, robust conversation to warm up with on that on that first parable of the shrewd manager, because it's let my brain tick over a little bit. And I think I have been 
I was going to say guilty of. I'm not even quite sure that it's that it's guilty though, of exactly what you're describing, Cam. I have certainly sat through at least one personal testimony session in a in a church. I don't know whether it was the main church building or a Friday night vespers session, and I have heard someone start telling a story that got progressively more and more impossible to believe. And I found myself thinking, I think this guy's making it up. I'm I'm not I'm not finding it to be uplifting. I'm actually getting really uncomfortable. I'm not finding it to be persuasive. This guy's just just telling a, a yarn. He's telling a tall story. Uh, is that an experience that anyone has has resonated with? No. What kind of Friday night meetings were you going to? <laughs> <laughs> there's, the, there's the other sort though, Locke, isn't there? There's the sort of person who has a personal testimony uh, about a life lived um you know in sin in sin and the salacious details of this life are shared in great detail and and um and then everyone is left feeling like they've missed out i didn't sin enough and then but then at the end then at the end they say and now my life is delightfully boring and then at the end they say now i'm safe (laughs) But the proportion of the testimony that's given to to their salvation doesn't seem to reflect its obvious um, obvious importance. So that's one another sort of testimony that I found difficult. Another sort I found difficult. Lock, you've got me going now. Um, is the sort of testimony where God intervenes in a spectacular way, and I don't doubt God's intervention, but there is an assumption made by the person who's sharing their testimony that anyone who has a faith you know at least as good as theirs should should receive an equal level of of god's miraculous changing of circumstances mm. and, yeah i've certainly heard and, that and often the intervention is on a, a matter that in the grand scheme of things uh, seems to be of very little importance no matter how important it might have been to the particular individual um, and uh, why and that's that's not being that's not being cynical I, there are things in my life which, at the, at the time, I feel really strongly about. Mm. God must be very um, long-suffering with us, and like a parent, I suspect He cares about some of the things we care about even more than they're intrinsically worth. Um, mm, just, good point. just because we do, and in that sense, there's there's probably some interventions that matter a lot to me that that might sound trite. Well, and a lot of a lot of testimony that I've heard over the years does sound trite, to be fair. And a lot of the times I've considered sharing my own testimony, I have contemplated what I would say and gone, "Well, that's trite nonsense." I think. I think <laughs> that's very self-absorbed. I think a testimony is the people who find, te- and this is going to sound terribly judgmental, but the the people. The audience that appreciates testimonies the most are people who already believe and people who are already convinced. That's really interesting, Clancy. I'm going to have to think about that. It ties in. And that may, it ties well, in with this rich man and Lazarus story, doesn't it? I was going to say, exactly, that may be the point yes, of this parable. That's, that's where the thought <laughs> well came done. from, in fact. Because <laughs> I, I was going to say that, to, to be clear, what's being... And, and I, I get it, it's a parable. There's an... It, this could be an element of hyperbole here. It's not talking about the sort of personal testimony here where someone talks about how God helped them find their keys once. This is talking about literally a visitation of a ghost saying, beware, 
Use your money wisely. Your brother is in hell. Oh my goodness, That's it's a Christmas the Carol. the personal testimony that we're talking about. Yeah, it's literally the ghost of future. Christmas past. Um, Christmas, Christmas future. Yeah. It's not... And, and yeah, that may be an exaggeration for effect. But he, he's saying, look, even that would not convince someone who is not convinced. And I think that's that's exactly the point. Yes. Uh, balanced against this, of course, are the, the verses that, that the lesson recommends us to study this week. And there are many that, that do demonstrate some power um, in people sharing their story. Uh, so, I mean, the, one reason why I wanted this discussion to happen and why I picked these passages for our discussion for this week is simply because I do find this a very difficult... It's it's part of Christian life that I, I don't fully understand. I'm not very comfortable with. I don't find a huge uh, amount of consensus. I'm basically confused. Christ seems at times to tell people to go and share their story and at other times he, he forbids it. I don't, I, I, I don't always see the systematic difference between the circumstances. Uh, obviously he did and there may have been just there may have just been peculiar circumstances that um, and particular people present that that Christ knows of you know one can imagine someone who's just been healed from leprosy and Christ knows that in that particular village there's three people who died last month from leprosy and uh, perhaps someone miraculously being healed and turning up in that circumstance might not be the best thing I think you've just made me think of the 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 different gospel, but the woman at the well and the end of that story, which is not a parable, of course, but the end, the villagers say to her, we don't believe because of what you told us. We believe now because we have met him. It is a personal encounter with Jesus that is persuasive not somebody else telling you about their personal encounter with Jesus. I think I mean I think the 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 power of someone telling you talking about their life turned around is particularly potent in perhaps um uh, an earlier time not not in the too distant past but in a time when people had were were outside the community of faith not because they didn't believe it was genuine but because they didn't believe they belonged. And the power of personal testimony there was saying, well, you can belong because I thought I didn't belong, but look, I do. And that in in sort of the reassurance of that. But, you know, we're not in that situation where people are outside the community of faith because they feel like they've sinned too much. I mean, we, we may well be. We may well know those people, but I mean, generally as a society is what I mean. There's one one interesting aspect of, of that, what you're saying, which is, um personal testimony this is occurring to me now may be most powerful when shared with people who are similar to the person giving the testimony and the more different you are from them um culturally different um you know socioeconomically different wh- whatever it might be the less power that personal testimony has because the less easy it is for the listener to see themselves in that story i mean that's why that's what jesus says he says don't go somewhere else no don't come and follow me stay where you are and tell the people who already know you that's and the other know, thing i was going to say changed. is that a personal testimony saying that god's changed my life 
will will hold the most power uh, when when said to people who already know you and can already see your life has been changed. In the sense, if a stranger comes up to me and says, I've had an amazing encounter with Vishnu. There was a mathematician who, I can't remember which of the the Hindu gods it was, but he, he came up with all these amazing theorems. He wowed the mathematical world. And when people asked him how he discovered all the maths he knew, he said, I just, I just woke up one morning and knew it. And he said that the goddess, it was one of the goddesses, had given it to him in a dream. And that's a testimony of sorts. At a religious level, I'm not, I'm not convinced, although the, the maths is incredible. And we have this experience when people come and knock on our doors, if, if the Jehovah Witnesses turn up or, or the Mormons. Are we convinced? If, if not, how, how can we rationally expect other people to receive our testimony differently? You remind me of a, a th- thing that happened to me, Cam. I, <laughs> I was chased down by a, someone wanting to share their testimony with me once. And it was actually really, really alarming. I was pushing a pram, my baby in a pram, and this person pulled their car over on the side of the road and ran across the two-lane road to talk to me because they wanted to witness to me. Um, I can't remember if I ran away or not. I think I might have tried to escape because I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be. Um, have someone try to convert me. I, I've, I've gotten, I've missed trains because I've had people stop to, stop me at train stations and talk my ear off and I'm, I can't, I'm, I can't be rude enough to sort of slam the door in their face or in this case run away from them. Um, but it is, it's such, it's something I so don't appreciate. Is that the, is, is that personal testimony or is that, what's the word for it? proselytizing yeah harassment do you remember Locke when um, Philip Yancey came to Avondale and there was that drama group that put on a couple of plays on uh, an evangelism school where the the tutor was telling them how to evangelize and what you do is you go up and you say hello and you introduce yourself and when you've reached elementary sort of uh, level of trust then you must hit them with the bible and so the person brings out the Bible and he's miming it, and the aunt, no, 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 you must hit a steeper angle. You must hit them at a steeper angle, and uh, you're coaching them all on how to hit them with the Bible. And let me have a look at. No, this Bible is not big enough. You know, and the tutor had a thick German accent. I'm not sure what cultural stereotype that was buying into, but um, because I don't think the Germans are particularly <laughs> religiously conservative, but that's that's what they did. And and then the the, the play ended with um. With the two, someone being bludgeoned. No, the play, play ended with the two students. The tutor leaves the room. The professor leaves the room. The two students are saying, "Oh, I just can't get a hang of this evangelism thing," um, and I, you know, I'm so worried. I've got so many stresses. You know, kids are being ready. I'm trying to study this stuff, and the other one says, "Oh, I'm so sorry about that." What? Look, how about we on our way home? I'll drop you home. Let's stop in at a cafe on the way, and you can tell me all about it. And um, and it was obviously set up as a real juxtaposition um, of of you know uh, genuine interest um, against you know religious forced religious attitudes reminds reminds me of a, an experience I had uh, one of my admittedly very few um, experiences involving sort of proselytizing where I had a friendship with um, somebody who was from a non 
Christian, non-religious background. Um, and my employer, who was who was uh, running the religious, was running an English language school, but it had a it had an outreach purpose. He was talking to me about this guy, and this was very early on in this guy's sort of journey towards being knowing anybody who was a Christian, uh, much less knowing what it's all about. Um, and he just said that the my my boss just said to me at one point, more or less completely out of the blue as I remember it, oh, you need to tell him about the Daniel prophecies. It's time. It's time to give him all the Daniel prophecies. That's what you should do now. I'm like, this guy doesn't even know who... It doesn't even know what salvation... Even the basic concept. It, it just seemed to me to be exactly what you described in that play. Your story reminded me of a story I've got, Luke, which is fantastic, amazing, absolutely incredible. You won't believe when I tell this testimony to you that this story actually happened, but I can promise you that it actually did. Well, we... I'm the one who won't believe it happened, Cam, remember? <laughs> yeah, I'm persuaded already. Oh, no, this is, this is a personal <laughs> testimony, but it's not religious. It's Because these, these problems with people sharing opinions or, or uh, experiences or worldviews is not just related to religious uh, testimonies. Um, when I got engaged to uh, my wife, Melissa, and very newly engaged, and everyone's running up to look at the ring, and it's all very excited. And, and we went to her church, where she'd, she'd been part of this church from a, a, a baby. She'd been involved. She does music at the church. She did music at the church. She was, everyone knew Melissa, and they were all interested. And so they're all running up and looking at the ring. And one lady came up to um, see Melissa and said, Oh, you're engaged. That's wonderful. Um, there's only one thing left you need. Permaculture. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, and then she proceeded to talk to us about permaculture for 10 minutes and left. <laughs> and, I, I believe it, Cam, and the reason I believe it is because we had someone come and quote some uh, the installation of some solar panels on our roof and he fit us in towards the end of his day and it was i think in winter time so the sun had gone down and as he came in and he talked to us looked around sort of and looked at the roof and chatted to us about the options and things he provided then he sat down at our table to write the quote and somehow i'm not quite sure how somehow he got on his hobby horse about his particular new interest of um, pseudoscience nonsense. He stayed for at least an hour just banging on on this, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And it was complete, complete nonsense. And he, we, could, we couldn't get him out of the house. Um, and it was, it, was, it was so akin to the feeling I've had of, you know, door-to-door -door religious proselytizing. It, and it was it was absolutely done with that sort of fervor. I've gotten convinced of this this theory that I've got, and I want you to listen to it. And he he would not leave. And it was oh my goodness, it was it was, it was awful. I wanted to we wanted to put the children to bed, and we couldn't because this strange man was in our house, and he wouldn't stop talking. But I mean, I'm not. It's it's easy to sort of start thinking about personal testimony and immediately think of all the quacks you've you've gotten stuck in conversations with. Is that really what 
what is in view when we talk about sharing our testimony or is it or is, are these all convenient excuses well we shouldn't do it because we're just we'll sound like crazy people that won't leave our house in my case you're probably right i'm by nature a fairly retiring person i find it uncomfortable talking to people i don't know and it is almost certainly the case that i am too ready to accept excuses for why i shouldn't share my testimony um what you described there, Clancy, where you effectively have somebody else feeling more comfortable in your home than yes. you do is, is my personal hell. That's where I if, – if I was the rich man in the story, it wouldn't be <laughs> fire. It would be a table with a guy in my house talking nonsense to me, a stranger. That's torment for me. Yeah. Let, let me make my, my social justice point that I feel contractually obliged to make because I work for ADRA. Um, <laughs> and maybe we can wrap it up with that. I was going to say that a couple of observations is one, one is that it comes back to the revelation that you shared with us, Clancy, that, or, or that we came to that personal testimony is, is maybe not the, the, f- supposed to be the sort of formalized individual to group concept that we have of personal testimony that's maybe not what is effective what is effective is the one-on-one conversations with people you already know and who are in the right point in their lives where they are open to being moved by testimony because they can see themselves in it and they know you they know Um, you're not just trying to and, and they know you. And that that is the type of personal testimony that is illustrated in this story, because the rich man's family would know Lazarus personally because he was the beggar <laughs> outside true. his door. It was not a stranger. It's a personal testimony from someone they would probably know quite well. And here's the social justice part. Somebody who whose suffering they ignored while he was alive, which I think is a very important message to the Pharisees in a very important context that this story opens with that, that that isn't explicitly stated, but Lazarus was suffering outside this guy's door every day for how long, and he ignored him. Which is the biggest, one of and the abominations is, um, described in the Old Testament is, is injustice. Yeah. I, yes. Uh, it, it, it's, it's everywhere in the Bible, and then I was uh, happy to see it. Here also, because I, I feel that justice and injustice are things that God cares about very deeply that we often overlook in, in, in our conversations um, about other parts of the Bible. But it, it, it's in so many places, and it is here as well, um, that this story takes place because the rich man ignored the suffering of others. And, and so the, the implication then is what sort of people uh, would reject any sort of persuasive argument or evidence or testimony who would have their hearts hardened to it? It's the sort of people who let somebody die on their doorstep for, for want of things they could have provided. Indeed, uh, that is the very thing at which the law and the prophets are directed. Um, it is looking after the oppressed, uh, looking after the widow, looking after the um, vulnerable and the uh, 
underprivileged uh, is what the law and the prophets are directed at. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in Luke chapter 10, um, uh, Jesus specifically um, said that the great commandment is repeating whatever it is in Deuteronomy, that, you know, love your neighbor uh, and love God. Um, uh, so I think there you have it, Luke, supports you. That may be what verse 29 is referring to as mm. well. Mm. Well, we're, we're running out of time. I, I did think of one quote, and I couldn't remember to whom it was attributed, so I've just done a quick Google search. And I think it's a quote that summarizes more or less where we've arrived at looking at this story and talking about testimony. And it's the well-known quote from St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. It is attributed to him, but it's also... Uh... Um, thought to be apocryphally attributed to it. Right. Um, right. Whether whether he said it or not, I, I think it's still wise. And I think it's a challenge it for is. us all not just to share testimony, but to live differently to the rich man, uh, to live in a way that, that makes the world a better place, to live our testimony. A tree is known by its fruit, and whether or not God has been at work in our lives uh, should be evident. I think that's a challenge to us all and something, at least personally, that gives me pause for thought.